I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 39 through 12 too. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, as I attempt in the next few minutes to unfold these verses, I ask for your help. I pray for humility before the word. I pray for protection from error in thought or affection. I pray for prophetic gift that would bring to mind those elements of truth that would hit home with most soul-converting and soul-sanctifying power. I pray for freedom and love to abound. I pray for a sympathetic hearing and one that is discerning of truth. I ask that you would be here with your weightiness and that your presence would manifest itself in transformed lives and in built-up faith and hope and in clarified vision and in the capacity to run a race that will finish well, whether soon or late. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews is written to a church that is getting old and growing tired and beginning to settle into the world and not be vigilant or careful or watchful in their lives. The hands, it says later, are growing weak and the knees are getting feeble and they are beginning to meander. I like that word and I hate the idea except in streams. Streams should meander. People should run, according to this text. This church is beginning to meander. They get up in the morning and they meander through the day. Now, we've seen this. Those of you who've been around for a year and a half, we've seen this over and over again. Let's review. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the writer says, We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift, drift away from it, 
how, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So you hear those words? We must pay close attention. We must not drift. We must not neglect. You hear a concern in those words for this church. They're a neglecting church. They're a drifting church. They're not heeding the word anymore. They're meandering and coasting and drifting in their Christian lives. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there be in you... Notice, take care. Are you taking care? Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God, but encourage one another. Are we doing that? Every day, as long as it is called today, lest there be in any of you a hardness by the deceitfulness of sin. There are many in this church that he's writing to who have grown lazy in their spiritual walk with a kind of false notion of security and that nothing huge is at stake when small group gets together on Sunday evenings. Nothing huge. Nothing big, nothing eternal, nothing awesome, nothing weighty is at stake. And life has begun to be trivial, light, L-I-T-E, bud light, life light, church light. That's who he's writing to. Chapter 5, verse 12. Though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elemental principles of the oracles of God. You come to need milk and not solid food. You hear the ache in this writer's voice? There's been enough time since you got saved that you should be teaching a class. Or a small group. Or a wife. Or children. Or a neighbor. You should be teaching. And you need milk still all these many years later. Why? You're drifting, you're coasting, you're neglecting, you're not vigilant. You're treating life as though you can just get up in the morning and meander instead of run. That's who he's writing to. Chapter 12, verse 12. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, there's still time. There's hope for this church. This is a metaphor of their spiritual condition. Hands are kind of weak. They're on the bat like this at the home plate. You don't stand like that at the home plate. You stand like this. The knees are weak. Just kind of wobbling around. And you know what happens with weak knees? They get hit from the side and it's over. History, big surgery, big brace, and no more basketball. So while there's still time... Do some exercises to get the cartilage and to get the muscles up to speed. This is all spiritual talk here. He doesn't give a rip about your knees, I don't think. Well, a little bit. The Bible says he gives a little bit of a rip. But not much. He'd rather have your legs cut off and go to heaven 
than to keep legs and go to hell. So, have you got the picture now of this church that he's writing to in chapter 12? Let's read verse 1 at the end again, because here's the main point. Chapter 12, verse 1, near the end of the verse. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, this command does not come out of the blue. You, you know that now after the last five minutes. This command, let's run, let's run, let's run, does not come out of the blue. It comes out of a passion for this church that's in tremendous spiritual danger because of a false concept of life as meandering and coasting and drifting, no vigilance, no care, no watching, no earnestness, no weightiness. And he says, this is very dangerous. And so please let us look to Christ and let us run. So the main point of this whole text that I read from verse 39 of chapter 11 to verse 2 of chapter 12 has one imperative, even though in English there's several, in Greek there's one imperative, and it's run! Let us run. Everything else in this text explains running or motivates running. So the point is don't stroll, don't meander, And don't wander about aimlessly. Run as in a race with the finish line where everything hangs on the race. Now, what supports it? In verse 1, there are a couple of things said here as a means to running. It says, lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. Now, I remember, as a boy, the effect a sermon had on me on this verse. And the only thing I remember was the distinction that the preacher made between, he was preaching from the King James at the time, weights, Translated encumbrances here and sins. And he looked out on us and he said, not just sins. Don't just lay aside sins to run this race. Lay aside every other weight that gets in your way. As a boy, you know what the effect that it was a revolutionary effect that that had on me. Because what it said to me was, and I speak it now, especially for young people. Kids, if you, if you can get this, but especially young teenagers and teenagers, but it applies to everybody. What this says is, don't just ask, what's wrong with it in life? Don't just say about your music, about your movies, about your parties, about your habits, about your computer games. Don't just say, well, what's wrong with it? Don't just ask, is it a sin? 
That's about the lowest question you can ask in life. I'm going to do it if it's not a sin. So tell me, is it a sin to do this? Well, not exactly. Okay, that's all I want to know. I'm off to do it. And the preacher said, and I'm the preacher now, saying, this text says, look to Jesus and lay aside sins for sure and lots of other stuff too. Now that's a different way to live. So what, well, preacher, what question as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, should I ask if it's not, is it a sin? And the answer is, does it have me run? That's the answer. Does it get in my way when I'm trying to become more patient, more kind, more gentle, more loving, more holy, more pure, more self-controlled? Does it get in my way or does it help me run? That's the question to ask. Ask the maximal righteousness question, not the minimal righteousness question. That was the difference it made in my life. And I've been ever since then. I didn't always live up to this. I'm not making any claim that from age 12 on I did some great spiritual thing. But oh, I had a trajectory that was so much better than the minimalist ethic that comes with, well, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? What? I don't even want to talk about what's wrong with it. Let's talk about, does it help me run? Now, you know why that question isn't very often asked? Because we're not passionate runners. We don't want to run. We don't get up in the morning saying, what's the course today? What's the course of purity? What's the course of holiness? What's the course of humility? What's the course of justice? What's the course of righteousness? What's the course of love? What's the course of self-control? What's the course of courage and witness? Oh God, I want to maximize my running today. If you have that mentality about your life, then you'll ask not, how many sins can I avoid? But how many weights can I lay down? so that I am fleet-footed in the race of righteousness. Okay? Well, that made a big difference to me. And I hope the distinction there, lay aside not just sins, but lay aside weights and run. Be vigilant. Be earnest. Now, here's a... I have a little criticism. I have a bone to pick with some forms of psychology. I would say some because I'm not an anti-psychology person. I'm not crusading against psychology. I thank God for godly psychology and people with a God-centered vision for understanding the psyche and the emotion and how things work and helping people get along better. I like that idea. And there are biblical grounds for good counsel when you read Proverbs. But I got a bone to pick with certain things. And one of them is this. And it's relevant in this text. That's why I bring it up. There's a lot of labeling of personality types with the net effect of neutralizing the possibilities of change and the possible 
assessment of one of these or more as being less biblical than others. That's bad. You don't do that in this brand of psychology. You don't pass judgments on categories. You just label them and then everybody knows their category and proceeds to coordinate their ENTJ and INTP and together. Now here's my problem. Just take there's a passive kind of person, there's an aggressive kind of person. This is true, okay? Now, you put a label on the passive kind of person and label on the aggressive kind of person, and now they hear their label and they say, okay, okay, that's just who I am. And they come to a text like this, which sort of fits the aggressive type. Lay aside the weights, lay aside the sins, and run! And the passive type says, well, that's not me. I'm not like that. I'm just not wired that way. I don't get up in the morning and ask about being fleet-footed. I do tend to meander, and that's just me. And at that point, if you cross over the line from self-identification to Bible nullification, you're wrong. Now, it it is absolutely true that there are strengths and weaknesses for every kind of personality type. The passive type people have the great strengths of tending not to murmur as much or complain or retaliate, but also often lacking in vigilance, self-control, and the enslavements that come with it. The aggressive type, very vulnerable to impatience and self-righteousness and judgmentalism, and yet also very given to making changes that are necessary when they need to be made and acting quickly on principle and so on. So I, I know that everybody's vulnerable and everybody's got strengths owing to the way they're wired. I'm just pleading that you don't come to texts, whether they are nice, sweet, passive texts, like, come to me, you all, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And the passive people say, amen, finally a text. Amen, it fits me. And, 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 the, and the, you know, the, what is it, A1, or what, I don't know what types are here, type A people and INTJs, they, they hear, lay aside every weight, and every sin and run. And I say, yes! And why isn't everybody like that? And so I understand that we're different, and I'm just pleading with you not to buy into fatalism about who you are. All right? Don't buy into anybody's label that when you get to a text like this, tends to make you just gloss over it and run away. I think I know myself a little bit. I'm sure I don't know myself as well as I should. And I know the texts I tend to run over and not sit with and preach preach to myself. And so I am preaching to myself now to work with that. You know probably a little bit about yourself and whether this text lands on you this morning with threat 
saying, I'm not that way, I'm not that vigilant, I don't care that much, I don't watch over myself that much, I don't lay aside sins, let alone things that aren't sins in order to run, I'm not that way. You need to really take heed here. So here's my suggestion. Let me get real practical. Before Labor Day, got a couple of weeks, before Labor Day, I suggest that everybody in this room, every adult anyway, everybody over, say, 13 or 12, everybody take a day or a half a day totally alone with a Bible and a tablet. And that's all. No beepers, no cell phones, and no wife, spouse, friend, child, workmate, and go to a park and find a tree and some grass and sit down for about three or four hours. If you got kids, five of them pulling on you, make a deal with the husband or the wife and say, like I'll say and do say right now to Noel, sitting all the way back waving at me from beside the information table. Noel, on Thursday, if you would like, and I hope you will, I'll take Talitha and Barnabas and you may have as much of Thursday as you want. Like maybe half of it. (laughs) So do that for each other. Now here's what you should do when you go away with your Bible and and your tablet. The reason I'm saying this is because Laying aside weights and laying aside sins only happens with a plan. Right now, you're all locked in. You know the things you're talking about. You know what you do. The kind of things that just aren't helping you on the way at all. They're not helping you, but they are so natural. They're so much a part of you that unless you stop, break, step back, write them down, So I I put down here, write down the entangling sins. Write down the innocent weights and encumbrances that keep you from pursuing faith and love and strength and holiness and courage and freedom. Write them down. And write down the subtle little provisions for those weights and sins that have grown up to make sure they happen. The hidden alcohol. The hidden candy. The computer games. There's a story behind these. I got nothing against... That's an overstatement. I, I don't, I'm not picking on Sim games. Sim City, Sim Train, Sim everything. I'm not picking on them. There's a story behind these two boxes. Last year, or was it two years ago now... One of you came to me with these in your hand, in a, in a brown bag, and handed them to me and said, would you hold me accountable and take these away from me? They are destroying my life. This is sin. This is not pornography. They're destroying my life. That's a weight, folks. This is a weight. This is not sin. This is a weight. It can become a sin. Hadn't, I don't think, for this person yet, but he said, uh, 
I haven't prayed for weeks. So write that down on your tablet. Write it down. Which of these games? I mean, it takes a year to learn how to play the games. <laughs> you can imagine when you've invested that much time to learn how to play, you've got to invest two or three hours a day to play them. The magazines, the novels, the television, the videos, the pull tab stop on the way home from work. And then after you got it all written down, pray and pray about dismantling these encumbrances in your life and resisting the sins and breaking the old habits. And when Satan causes the thought to rise in your mind, it isn't going to happen. Never has happened. Hasn't changed for 20 years. Not going to change now. Come back at that with biblical truth. This whole book of Hebrews was written for this verse. The whole book of Hebrews was written to back up verse 1 of chapter 12. Big therefore at the beginning of this verse. Therefore run. Therefore, because Jesus is superior over everything. Because the new covenant is superior over everything. Because his death and resurrection is all sufficient. Because he rose from the dead. Because he intercedes as our high priest in heaven. Because he's coming again to save those who are faithful to him. Everything in this book is written for you. So maybe open your Bible at that point and read the book of Hebrews all the way through under a tree at Lake Nicomas. And plan your run with Jesus this fall. Plan your fall run with Jesus before Labor Day. Plan your fall run with Jesus before Labor Day. Now, let's take a few more minutes and talk about motives. I think we've seen the the main point of the command to run, to lay aside weights, but now motivation is what we need from the Bible. Verse 1, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run. So the first motive is this cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? Who are they and what is their witness? Here's my answer to those two questions. They are the saints of chapter 11. The witnesses that have just been described in chapter 11, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, And all those judges and prophets of whom the world was not worthy are the cloud of witnesses and the many saints who have died and gone before since then. Well, what is the witness? A cloud of witnesses is surrounding you at Lake Nicomas. Sit there with your Bible in hand and your pad. What is this cloud? Where are they? Who what are they doing? How is that a motive to plan your fall run with Jesus? The word witness can have two meanings. It can be an act of seeing, I witnessed the event, or an act of telling, I witnessed to you that I did this or that, or I saw this or that. Can do that in Greek, can do it in English. Which is it here? Is it an act of seeing, they're watching us? Or is it an act of telling they're witnessing to us? I vote B. 
And the reason is because the word witness, the verb form of it, is used five times in chapter 11. And in every case, it is a telling, not a seeing. God is telling them that they are endorsed, or their works witness to their faithfulness. So here's my understanding of the scene here. Let me get the whole thing before you. We're all running a marathon in the Christian life. These saints, Moses and David and uh, Abraham and Sarah and Enoch, they have run the race and they finished it. And they came around and stood on the sidelines as we're running. And as they are there, they're holding out their wounds and testifying about the choices that they made, which we read in chapter 11. And Moses says to us, I did it. By faith, I chose against the wealth of Pharaoh. You can do it. You can do it, John. And we leave that portion of Scripture behind as we run by. And David picks up, the adultery won't keep you out. Just ask for forgiveness. I made it. You can do it. And you run by David. And Sarah goes by. I mean, stands there. I was old. It looked impossible. But he fulfilled his promise to me. You can do it by faith. You can do it. That's what the Bible is for. Here's one of the reasons I think that's the right interpretation. Um, Abel, back in verse 4. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11. It says, Through faith... Though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, that's the witness that we have in the cloud of witnesses of chapter 12, verse 1. We have a cloud of Abel's who, though dead, is still speaking. Though dead, he's still speaking. And what all of them are saying as they're lined up in the Bible along the course that we're running is... By faith you can do it. By faith you can do it. By faith you can do it. So as you've written down all the weights and all the sins that you want to battle this fall in your run with Jesus, the witnesses are there not just watching you. They are there in the Bible telling you it can be done. By faith you can do it. That's their witness to us. That's what chapter 11 is in the Bible for. So read the Bible. And then, second motive, verses 39 to 40. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That's an amazing statement. All these who died in chapter 11 did not receive what was promised... Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, run. Now, do you get it? Do you get the the therefore at the beginning of verse 1? Since none of them obtained the promise. 
Because God had provided something better for us so that they wouldn't be made perfect without us. Therefore, run. So as you sit there under the tree with your Bible and your tablet, listing off the weights and sins, you're going to fight this fall and you'll run with Jesus. You should think they didn't get their promise. Why? Well, because God willed that they come into the full inheritance of their promise with me. This is an awesome statement. God is postponing the consummation of the universe for you to finish the race. That's what it says. Isn't that what it says? All these did not receive what was promised. So here is Sarah, Moses, David, Elijah, Abraham. Spirits of just men and women made whole but no resurrection body yet, no new earth yet, no destruction of evil in the universe yet, no world filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea yet, the magnificent fullness of the promise of God waits. And we groan, and you know what? In heaven they groan. The Bible teaches that to die is gain, but not consummation. My mother is dead and with Jesus, and she groans, waiting the redemption of her body. And you know what they're waiting for? You. If that doesn't lend importance to your race this fall, what can? There's a race to be run, and God says, I'm going to bring you all in it together. Nobody's going to get there first. There's going to come a trumpet blast, an archangel's shout, and the dead in Christ will rise First, then we who are alive will join them and the consummation will happen together. And everything is waiting for that one great climactic consummation and moment. So when you sit there and you have your little tablet and you list off the fight that needs to be fought, remember there's a waiting. Not even King David or Moses or Job or Elijah or Sarah, or Deborah, have made it because, as it says, God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, just in closing here, two brief other motivations. Just allude to them in verse 2. It says, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, Look to Jesus down there at Lake Nokomis, your backyard by the river. Look to Jesus before Labor Day because there's going to be your whole flesh rising up and that whole psychological syndrome rising up and Satan coming down and saying, it cannot happen. It will not 
change. You've been like this too long. You've always been a limper. Your hands have always been weak. The weights have always been there. They will never cease. You will not be able to run with Jesus this fall in any new way. At that moment, you must not look to yourself. You must not look to psychology. You must not look to the beauty of nature. You must look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you must look to him as author and perfecter of faith. And the whole of chapter 11 said, it's by faith that I left Egypt. It's by faith that I was sawn in two. It's by faith that I didn't choose escape. It was by faith that my whole value system was turned upside down. And where does faith come from? Who is the author of it? Jesus. Who is the perfecter of it? None of us has perfect faith. Who's the perfecter of it? Jesus. Where then shall we look to find faith that taps into the power of God to fight the weights and the sins so that we can run? Jesus. We look to Jesus. And when we look, we say, Jesus, I know that by faith I embrace you, but I also believe that you embraced me for faith. Had you not reached down and embraced me and drawn me, I never would have reached out to you in faith. And now I believe you have authored my life in faith and that according to the promise, you'll perfect my life of faith. You're my only hope. If there's going to be any change this fall in my personality type or in my life, in my family, it'll be you. I've tried it before. It'll be you. And you trust Him. You sit down with your Bible and your tablet with an overwhelming sense that behind every good resolve, the Lord is at work in you to will and to do His good purpose. And lastly, verse 2, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross... I end with this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So you get, you get your list there in front of you and, and a little voice is going to say, this looks like a lot of loss and not much gain. This looks like a lot of loss. I medicate very successfully with this every night so that I don't have to talk to her. If I lose this, I don't know what I'll put in that void. At that point, open your Bible to Hebrews 12, 2 and look at how Jesus in Gethsemane said... Tomorrow morning is going to be a lot of loss. This is going to be mega loss at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. In fact, it's going to happen all night long. I will never sleep again before I die. And it's going to hurt like hell, literally. How did he do that? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So the answer is, yes, it's going to be loss. 
But I promise you, on the authority of God's word, the Christian life is gain. It's just a matter of timing. If you have the eyes of God, you see your life as a vaporous breath. And then eternity. And if the losses in this life are extensive, and many of you have lifelong losses to deal with, collapse it down to a vapor's breath if you want to be realistic. Let's be realistic this morning now. Eighty years is a vapor's breath compared to eighty ages of millennia. So at that point, say to the flesh and say to Satan, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to me. And so, I will lay aside every weight and I will lay aside every sin and I will run this fall with Jesus. Let's pray. Let the worship team come on up and after I pray, I want us to sing the last two verses of May the Mind of Christ. Father, we're still before you for just a moment before we, we pray this song prayer. We want to run the race that is set before us. We have seen what it costs. We have seen the kinds of things that are in the way and we have seen three or four very significant motives that you give us. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come and work it. Before this day is over, before the small group meets tonight or before people go to bed tonight, may they have their day picked out before Labor Day when they will go away and plan their fall run with Jesus. Lord, come and grant us that, even as we sing, I pray.